Welcome to today's webinar from Ascendo Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And I've been doing these. I just noticed in the recording, this is the 54th time that we've recorded from this platform. So we're probably over 50 webinars over the last uh, oh, four or five years now that we've been doing it. And some of you, I recognize, have been here uh, all the way through and been to many of these. And uh, as you know, I record them, and so they're available through the Ascendo Reliability website. They're also a podcast, which seems to be getting pretty good traction on the reliability.fm uh, podcast network. And so there's a bunch of good stuff there. But I'm going to dive into today's topic, and let's see if everything else is working great. It looks like sound is working. Mark is here. That's good, luckily. Hopefully that's not bad news, uh, why you weren't able to make it, or maybe it was just traffic. Uh, Jit and Michael and Hassan and Sean and all kinds of folks are here, so welcome. Really appreciate you showing up today. So most of what I want to talk about today has to deal with variation and the, the variability of so many things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so in one if you're making a product, uh, the parts that we make the product from vary. As you know, that no two resistors are exactly 100 ohms. They, they vary slightly, and sometimes quite a bit, up to say 20% is some of the specifications for it, or, or more. And uh, mechanical parts have uh, variation in widths and thicknesses and lengths and diameters and uh, um, surface roughness you name it, there's just about a way or multiple ways, I'm sure, for just about anything to measure the variation. Now, variation isn't all that bad, and we can deal with that, and that's what makes things like mass production possible. And yet, there's also this variation that occurs outside the design, and it's the things that happen in the weather. Like right now, I'm waiting for a backhoe that's parked outside to start up, and that'll create some variation on the on the sound on on the system here. Battens uh, and stellar jays are going crazy outside, so hopefully the variation on my local environment isn't too much of a problem. Yet our products get used someplace, whether in outer space or in a deep well of oil exploration, or under the hood of a car, or on your desktop, or wherever, and it sees variation in temperatures. Uh, for example, today at home, it was fairly cool last night, and we've got some fog rolling in from the ocean, so it's, it's a pretty brisk morning here in, in Northern California, at least in our area. Uh, I think we got into the 50s last night, which makes it great for sleeping, uh, but it's sweater time uh, during the, the early morning chores around the house and so on. Later today, we expect it to get up into the 80s and 90s, and so it'll be a bit different environment. So my, my equipment in and around the house sees quite a bit of variation uh, on a regular basis. And of course, where, wherever you are, I'm sure you'll see these, these kinds of variations and your products certainly see them. But what we want to do is make sure that the strength, including the variability of the materials and components, and is included in the strength of our product such that it's greater than the applied stresses and the range of variability of the stresses that our products see. 
And if that all works, then the bridge stays up, right? If we stress a product in such a way that it overcomes the strength uh, capability of that particular product, um, it fails and the bridge falls down. Now, there's lots and lots of different stresses and there's lots and lots of different things that have to withstand those stresses. And, and this gets complicated real quick, uh, but we'll just use this concept of that if our product is stronger than the applied stresses, it keeps working. And it's what we're really after when we talk about tolerancing uh, and reliability, the connection to, to reliability in that. Yeah, it, you know, Mark, you're exactly right. And strength goes down, it decays or degrades or, or weakens over time. And sometimes the load uh, increases. Uh, you know, the traffic uh, on opening day for the Golden Gate Bridge was probably pretty heavy, but it's probably not as bad as the daily traffic today. Uh, and the size of trucks are bigger, the loads we're carrying are bigger. Um, just There's just more stress being applied. Uh, temperatures are swinging more. Uh, we're just the, the everything around this this structure has changed in the last 50 to 75 years, or however old this thing is. It's probably close to 100 years now, I imagine. But the the basic idea here is that we know everything varies, right? Everything varies, but it's only sometimes that we really care about it. And it's part of the design process, and to a large extent, this design for reliability is that we need to pay attention to those things that vary, that will accelerate the degradation of our strength or respond to stresses that occur and immediately fail or the variations of those things is when the stress-strength balance gets out of whack. It's those particular phenomena the variation of our components and materials or the understanding of the variability in the environment are the few that we need to pay attention to. Now, I, I know I've talked about this topic a number of times and there's so many different things that vary, but the, the gist is, is that in the design team and in the process of creating a design for a, a product, say a phone or a printer or a car or a rocket, is that we need to understand the variability. And that is what affects reliability, in my mind, as much or more than anything else. Now, many of you know that I, I often say that it's, um, it often talk about that it's always the designer's fault. And, and this is the heart of it. If the design includes clear and useful information about the stress variability and the materials and component variability, they're set up in a better position to actually make a product that's robust and, and durable and so on. If they don't have that information or are taking shortcuts, then it's likely that we're gonna have a product that won't perform as it, as it should. And so I, I think this is pretty obvious, right? The folk, you know, what we're talking about here is pretty common sense. The hard part is in the details of it, of how it actually gets applied. And so I, I, I look at it as, as a couple of, um, it's like a chicken and the egg problem. You know, we, we, in order to set tolerances on a component, we need to understand its variability. 
And then to get its variability, we also need to understand that it's stable, that it's a consistent, stable, uh, regular process. And so things like process control and, uh, and stability of our, our production facilities for the components and materials we use needs to be in a certain state in order for us to get useful information from it such that we can set tolerances. But sometimes we need to make the product, right? And, and create the systems uh, without really that information. And in which case then we need to make sure that, the, that we have uh, some margin or some way of sorting this out so that we can then set appropriate tolerances and back and forth. So sometimes we create something new, then we start measuring it and find out what its variability is and then understand its process capability and so on, back and forth. It goes back and forth. From a reliability point of view, what we're interested in is that that conversation happens and that that balance is struck such that we still get a functional product, one that we can manufacture with reasonable yields and capability of actually assembling the product, and that it's durable for all of its environmental stresses that, that it will see. Okay, so. It's, it's back and forth here, right? And some of these basic concepts I know I've talked about before, and, but this is the, the one formula that I mentioned in the chat, is this concept of process capability, right? Now, it only is valid in only the CP and CPK numbers and, and the other um, uh, capability indices that are out there are only valid for a stable process. Right? So we need think of the, the traditional X-bar and R-chart or X-bar and S-chart looking at standard deviations. If that shows a stable process, doesn't necessarily mean that everything is in spec, just that it's stable, that it's the, the parts, the distribution of parts, dimensions that I get this week are similar to the distribution of parts that I get next week and the week after and so on. And so it, it's con predictable, consistent is the, the right set of terms. We often don't check that. We ask vendors for their, um, you know, we, we ask vendors for their process capability, their CPK. Here's our tolerances, what's your capability? And I think that's a bit backwards. That's a bit out of, out of connection there. And the idea, though, is that we should be asking, is your process stable? So if I'm buying a, a part or creating a, a fabricating a, a flange, for example, uh, let's get enough parts or similar parts to, from that manufacturing process so that we can determine, is it a stable process first? Then let's figure out what the appropriate tolerances are such that we get a reasonable CPK and CP. Instead of a designer saying, oh, I need uh, plus or minus uh, six tenths on this dimension, and then hope that the process is able to make that. It, I think in many cases, especially for critical parts, it gets a bit out of balance in that it's exacerbated that by our manufacturing processes being located other places than where our designers are. So they don't get that um, 
intuitive feel and ongoing presence of what the variability is. And so doing a shorthand of just saying, well, what's the CPK doesn't really help us, doesn't really help us get the, the specifications right. Now, one of the things I, when I first ran into this uh, process capability indices and things like that, I said, oh, and I was a manufacturing engineer, of course. Um, I went right straight to the design team and said, well, you're hammering me and asking me to improve the CPK, the process capability, by reducing the variability of our process. And that's great. I'll do that where I can. Yet, it's a much, much easier if you just open up the specification, right? The upper USL and LSL are the upper and lower specification limits. And if those are wider, then I get a better process capability. And they can do it with a design change on a, on a drawing where in the manufacturing floor, especially the product I was working on at the time, it was exceedingly difficult to squeeze another half ounce of variability out of the process. Um, and so we, we went to great lengths to reduce variability, but it just was getting more and more and more expensive. And so I finally sat down with the designer and says, well, where do the specs come from? And it was a resistance value that we were, we were monitoring. And he says, oh, it's just plus or minus 10%. That's what we always use. And I'm like, well, how does that have any effect on whether this product performs or not? Is it too much or too little? And how do you know? And he had no idea. Um, so it started a whole study to find out what amount of variability actually mattered, uh, which was completely different than reducing the standard deviation term this three sigma part here, this standard deviation, the sigma. Um, and, and it ended up being that the function, functioning of the product worked just fine with a much larger specification, or, or a spec limit, I should say, tolerance on it. And so we were very, very happy about that. And uh, of course, the, the effort to con continue to reduce the variability never went away. Yeah. And, and, and watching some of the, the, the discussion here, yeah, you're right. It's not just open it up as much as you can, because uh, it does affect the performance, the fit, form, and functionality of a product. It's got to be done in balance with those other considerations. What, and, and we'll come back into some of the issues that come around ways people typically set tolerances. My favorite by far is that you see a, a design drawing and in the, in the uh, um, I want to call it signature block, the, the, there's a, usually a block of uh, the title and units of measure and all kinds of other notes and stuff like that on, on drawings. And one of them almost always is, is that if, if a dimension does not have a, a tolerance on it, it defaults to plus or minus some number, usually 10% is what I almost always see. And some drawings have absolutely no tolerances on them whatsoever, and it's all default. And I think that is the sign of a very lazy designer. Um, tolerances are what is permissible for the product to work. Now, on occasion, there are some components and some manufacturing processes, or I shouldn't say manufacturing processes. There are some designs that, in order for it to work, for for example, the, the two holes to line up just right, uh, 
given the way that a product is designed. Let's say I've got, let's see if I get my pen to work here. So if I have a hole here, and I'll use a, just a cross-sectional view of it here, and I've got another part that needs to align with that, they might be offset just slightly because of the where these things get attached somewhere off in the distance, and we call it a tolerance stack up, that these two things are not quite lined up perfectly. So if we needed to put a bolt or a screw or something through that or a flange or a, a cylinder, it might not quite make it. Now, one of the tricks is, is to open the size of these holes, right? Make them both a little bit bigger such that if this one's big enough, this offset could be taken up and I can still uh, put a, 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 a bolt through it and it still fits. Now, it's a trade-off though, right? Because now this bolt is not as tight to the mating surfaces as maybe we want. And maybe that'll come loose or it'll create some slop or it doesn't, it shows up somewhere else as being not quite right. In worst cases, it creates areas for corrosion to occur, it creates small motion is permissible, all kinds of problems can occur. So very quickly, it becomes a trade-off. Now, if the designer wants it to be a perfect fit where the, the two holes line up absolutely perfectly, I'm getting some lag here, and, and they're just the size of the, the bolt that goes through it, we may end up with a lot of scrap. If they don't fit, we either have to repair it, rebuild it, or throw it away, or do something else with it. And so it becomes a cost if we are not able to assemble it. If it's assemblable, right, with an open, more open tolerance, it may create paths for failure in the field. So it, we may improve the yield in manufacturing, but may give up its ability to perform in the field and or to fail eventually. And so there's, this is just a very simple example, but there's, and I'm sure you can think of, of many others where this, this balance between how do we set tolerances such that we can still build it and it still works. Uh, it is a tricky part of the design process. Now, the, the part of it that's where we come in is that if we end up with a product that's difficult to build, it's very likely that we're going to end up with more failures that escape the plant that uh, are not sorted or weeded out or inspected out. They get to the field that have marginal performance. And so that's one path to failure, right? The other path is that we get parts that have that are easy to assemble and and have huge tolerances and, and allowances for the variability, uh, but then it's just a little bit more rattly. It's a little bit less fit uh, properly. Customers sense that it's not quite as tight. Is in using that word loosely to mean. Um, uh, of high quality is often a perception when tolerances are very tight and very consistent. And so we end up with either um, 
less acceptance of the product or we allow for more variation within the design to have less ability to withstand the stresses that it sees in the field. And so those couple of concepts are, are key of why we in the reliability world pay attention to, the, to tolerancy. At least we should, right? Now, SPC and process capability and tolerancing are not consistently considered reliability tools. They're, they really should be done by other people uh, and monitored and managed and, and enhanced by other teams within organizations than strictly a reliability engineer. Now, all too often, we're the representative statistician around, so we end up with paying attention to SPC in working with vendors to reduce the variability of the parts. But you also need to put your nose in to the designer's area and look at the practices of tolerancing, and especially the ones that are critical to the reliability performance of your product, is understanding the variability of the supplying process, the materials or component dimensions that you're, you're putting together, and understand the impact of the stresses, both in manufacturing and in, in operation and use, and how it impacts the performance of that product. And for the ones that have the stress strength curves that tend to overlap a little bit, there's not much margin there, those are the ones we need to really pay attention to and get right and work with the design team to get the appropriate tolerances such that they can that we have an appropriate CPK value, process capability, and it functions. And it functions over time and, and hits the reliability targets. It's, um, it's, a, it's an area that is just ripe for reliability folks to interact with the various pieces of our processes and make that all work. Right. So I, I don't think, I don't remember that I have any slides on this one, but so how many ways can tolerancing go wrong? Have you seen that before? I know in the past, in my presentations, I usually have my, my answers for this one. Um, but for those that have gotten involved with tolerancing to one extent or another, um, Yeah, multiple ways. Well, what do you mean, Reed? How many? And Dennis? Yeah, what do you mean? And I mentioned that they use just a default. They don't even think about it. I think that's a, a critical way that it goes wrong. Well, yeah, if manufacturing can't make it, then that's a process capability issue, right? If they're not able to create a product to spec, um, it it's the process. I I, I Deming and his philosophy comes to mind here is that, you know, if you make a product that can't be built, it's not the manufacturing process fault, right? If, if I need to keep to very tight tolerances for a process that you want to be as cheap as possible, well, we're just not going to get there. Yeah, just make it small because it sounds good. Yeah, it's always a good reason. I like that. Now, remember, process control really 
is just monitoring the process, right? And we're looking for opportunities to make improvement. Just because we're measuring SPC doesn't mean that the process variability fundamentally changes. It is what it is, and we're just monitoring it. And we're looking for those special causes that are causing it to shift or to change in some uncontrollable way. But if our standard process is plus or minus, you know, 10 mil, and the spec says 2 mil, we're using the wrong assembly process. We have the wrong technique here. Yeah. And, and David, you're bringing up this idea of, of, of the methods that are used to do uh, tolerancing, worst case and root sum squares. I also would add to that list the Monte Carlo uh, process, getting actual distributions of the variability that you're looking for of the various dimensions, and then using Monte Carlo simulation to sort out what your appropriate tolerances are for an appropriate uh, a set of fits that you're looking for. Yeah, but worst case is all too often it's the first run because it's the easiest. And if it works functionally with the worst case scenario, if they're making good assumptions or have good data on the amount of variability of parts coming in, that can actually work. But sometimes that tolerance stack up means that if everything's at its worst case, it just won't fit, it won't work. And so they use root mean squared as a technique to, to get a, a, um, the benefit of averaging. For example, if I have five parts that need to line up uh, just perfectly, then if I use the mean values or the averages of those things, I can probably get more of a tolerance to work and, and lose less pieces rather than using them all at worst case. And so the, the idea is that the means, root mean squared gives us the benefit of averaging. Unfortunately, in the production process, it's an individual part that I'm dealing with, right? And so the next better technique is to look at, well, I should also say that root mean squared has this uh, assumption that things are normally distri distributed, oftentimes. And oftentimes they're not. Parts are binned and sorted, and, and so they have truncated distributions or skewed distributions or all kinds of variations of, of patterns of variation, I should say. And so the, the idea is that we should, as oftentimes the statistician, local stat guy, is say, hey, look, we need to understand the variability of these critical parts. Let's go measure them. And then let's actually use that information without simplifying assumptions. In Monte Carlo simulation, you can do it in Excel. There's even add-ons to do it that way. Uh, R has some great packages for it. Is Then you get way better information about what are the critical dimensions that you really need to pay attention to and which ones can you play with a little bit. Yeah, carte blanche setting them, uh, setting them without much thought, setting them because that's what I need independent from what process is actually capable of producing um, are all kind of blind ways of doing tolerancing. And so oftentimes the simple thing with all of these is just having the information about the variability of the parts, right? So 
Yeah, and DOE is a good option if to balance and put all these things together. And, and it's a process to go get that information, right? The, the amount of variability you're dealing with and optimize for it. But even just get some prototypes and start making measurements. You might only get three parts. You can calculate a variance with that. Uh, it's not, it may not be all that terribly accurate for the population, but it's a start. And it's better than just assuming that it's plus or minus 10% of the, of the mean value or whatever the other techniques may be used. And so I, hopefully you're getting the notion here that I'm really, really trying to focus on variation. And it, oftentimes it's our ability to help people understand the magnitude of the variation and the shape of that variation in order for us to have informed decisions on setting tolerances. And so it's, it's, that goes right back to the, the early piece where it's, it's a chicken and an egg thing. For, especially for new designs, we don't know what the variability is or that we don't have information on this new manufacturing process. We just invented this material. We don't know. We've only made three samples. We don't know its variability. Well, then it's a good time to start tracking that information and, and finding out what variables are most important to keep track of and to, to understand. It could be a material property, it could be a dimension, it could be its response, its coefficient of thermal expansion, it could be all kinds of things. And so the, the first real step when we're running through these discussions is to measure, right? Let's get a hold of parts, let's get a hold of processes, let's get the best available data that we can and actually measure it. A part of that is SPC, right? Control charts. <clears throat> what we're looking for in order to set tolerances that aid the entire life cycle, including reliability. Uh, yeah, I think I did spell it wrong. There should be an S in there. A little bit of variability in my spelling, which I know exists. Sorry about that. Um, is um, statistical process control just starts the process of measuring it. And let's measure it over time. And our intent is to determine, is it stable? Right? Let's, let's figure out, is it a stable process? Is it consistent? And then, and then the standard deviation term from that process is meaningful and can be used in, in capability indices. If the process is not stable, we need to fix that first. Because the ability to measure a standard deviation this week maybe pure fiction for what we get next week and so on. And so it's a critical part of setting tolerances to have a stable process. And we know it's stable by doing control charting and measuring it. The other piece is that we're going to use that standard deviation value to judge how big our tolerances are. It goes back to that CPK kind of measure the, the capability indices. We also use it in stress strength calculations when we're comparing uh, the stresses of the environment on, on the materials we're using, how they age or wear or whatever. That variability is used in so many places that it's often 
assumed or overlooked or we just put a random number in there or whatever. It, it has to come from the data. It has to come from the best available set of measurements that you can get. Yeah, Westinghouse rules. Yeah. I don't know if that was meant to be a pun, Robert, but uh, yeah, there are there's seven rules on the control charts. Yep. Uh, but also, when they were doing control charting and wrote the book on it, I think they were doing pretty darn good too, in a different definition of rules. Once we start measuring stuff, it, it, there's a saying, and I don't remember who said it, is, you know, what gets measured gets done or gets paid attention to. I don't remember the exact quote. But the process is going to be what it is, and we're measuring it. And we want to make intelligent changes to the process to improve its ability to create products. Oftentimes that involves reducing the variability, but I think first is get it stable, second reduce the variability, and then third center the mean value. And those three steps in that order allow us then to manage a process and, and improve its stability over time, improve its capability to meet designers intent and give them more latitude of, as for setting tolerances appropriately for the functionality of their product. Now this seems like to me like many, many steps away from reliability. Yet if we don't measure variability and we're setting tolerances on assumed or fictitious standard deviations, um, we're going to see it in the product's performance and in its field per reliability performance. And so it's it's one of those steps that we should certainly pay attention to. And then once you go through this process and you find uh, say eight or 10 or however many critical to reliability, it, uh, quality folks call it critical to quality, uh, variables for our key components that we need to monitor and keep track of over time, then it's a matter of act actively monitoring it. The control charting is not done once we know it's stable, is we want to make sure it stays stable. And especially when you're going into high volume production, this monitoring step is critical because it doesn't take much of a change to throw your process, the, the variability of that process, out of kilter such that it starts to show up in your manufacturing process and in your uh, product's performance in the field. And so there's, there's a ton of different pieces here, right? and all of them interact in order for us to create a reliable product. All right, another one of these questions for you. I see a bunch of stuff going on in the uh, uh, chat window. I haven't been keeping up with it. Looks like a couple of conversations. But here's another one for you to throw into the chat is how important is the measurement system that you use? And a follow-on or corollary is how do you know your measurement system is good enough? The MSA, Robert, is the measurement system analysis, right? And Gage R and R, Elena, is a part of a measurement system analysis. Right? Anybody know the five sources of variability that an MSA would look after? Mark, I'm not familiar with the delta M, delta P. 
precision is one. Um, yeah, repeatability, reproducibility, bias, uh, precision. What's the other one? Now, Robert, those are sources of variability. What are the things we look for in a measurement system to be capable of? One of them is linearity, right? Is the scale, there you go, is it measurements at the low end of the scale as consistent measurement error as measurements at the high end of the scale or variations of it? Doesn't necessarily mean that the error is a linear function. It might be a parabola when you get into it. Okay. So thanks, Robert. Yeah, it sounds similar to a, a, a capability index. a little bit different measure of it. Yeah, and I've often, instead of like a 6, 7x better, I've, I've often heard of the rule of 10 in that. Um, so there's lots of different ways things can go wrong. Now, in my experience, a gauge R and R, a gauge, a just measurement, uh, uh, determining the measurement error due to repeatability and reproducibility uh, often gets you a long way towards understanding if your measurement system is contributing a significant amount of error to your measurement. Now, just about every time I've done this, and when we were saying, well, we're not really sure about this measurement system, is it, is it suitable for what we're trying to do? And let's say we have a tolerance of 10 mils, and I'm using a, a gauge that contributes 5 mils of error. Would that be a suitable measurement system, it's taking up 50% of the tolerance. No. It, and you know why, right? If I'm at measuring something that's at, that actually is, unknown to us, but is actually close to one of the, of the boundaries of our tolerance, the measurement error gives it a pretty good chance of being in or out. And it, it just clouds or creates a fuzziness around the edges of our measurement system. Yeah, a marginal, as you're right, saying, Dennis, is 30% of the tolerance or better. Now, here again, I often say, well, let's increase the tolerance if we can. Uh, then our measurement system becomes more capable. Uh, oftentimes, though, it's, it's, we're just using the wrong gauge altogether. We're using a caliper when we should be using something more precise and more repeatable for example. So in and apart, all of the system is that that standard deviation that we're going to use to set tolerances and we're going to measure and use for stress strength calculations and that we use for so many other uh, uh, decisions in a design process is the source of that measurement is something we need to pay attention to because the measurement error becomes an expander it increases that standard deviation. And if we're increasing in it significantly for the size of the decisions we're, we're trying to make, that's a pretty serious problem. Because we're, we're just going to have bad data at some point. So for those critical pieces and things that you're going to go measure, you know, use what you have to get started and get an idea where you're at. If the variability in that circumstance is acceptable and you can set appropriate tolerances and have a, a, a suitable design and everybody's happy and the part, part works, you're done. 
But oftentimes for those critical dimensions and the things that have are, are expected to have very little margin or very tight tolerances for one of many different reasons, then the the idea is is to make sure that the measurement system you're using is not ad adversely impacting those decisions. And as time permits, make sure your measurement system works everywhere else as much as you can. And so, yeah, all good stuff there. All right. Circling back a little bit, and it's more of a summary at this point, is that we need to know the variation. Right? In order to get started in setting tolerances and understanding what's important to the field reliability of our part, we need to understand what's going to vary and how much variation it's expected to have. So if I'm putting drilling a hole in a piece of metal to attach a bolt to it, I'm not only interested in the size of the hole and how consistent it is. It may also be roughness of that hole. And is it actually a circle or is it elongated in some fashion? Um, is, does it damage the material property around it? So if the drilling process creates heat, it may change the material property of what we're drilling through. It's, does it change its strength? Does it make it brittle? So as a reliability engineer, we're often looking at our parts and our, our products and with an eye towards what could fail. And how add to that repertoire is well, what can vary. So the sharpness of the bit can create more heat and create a, a hole that's not as round as we would like it to be. It may cut slower also. Uh, which would affect manufacturing. So they're often interested in keeping the drill bit sharp. If we're trying to hold tolerances and the manufacturing process itself has got tools that vary, um, understanding the impact of that variation on our product's performance and on its reliability is a way we naturally start looking at this variation. The other thing that we bring to the table is that if that variability starts to weaken a part, it's that uh, stress, stress strength curve concept. It creates more, uh, Ill, it doesn't fit as tight, for example, and it's more likely to come loose or create paths for corrosion or increased wear. Those kinds of things are sources of variation that lead to product premature product failure. And so it's with that kind of eye that we typically look at variation. Yet in order to control that variation and understand it in the design of both the manufacturing processes and of the product itself, is that we're dealing with that uh, statistical process control and we're dealing with the setting of the tolerances. And so we bring to the table an eye towards how variation is bad. And I'm and I'm wondering if I spelt variation wrong here. I think I did. Anyway, and then the element is, is then connecting that poor variation to problems in manufacturing, the adverse effect to product performance for what the design intent is, but then more importantly, how it leads to premature failure. 
And it, those are the ones that we circle back then again to the design team and the SBC and measurement systems and so on and get as good as information as we can get. See, the part of my variability on spelling is I can't tell. I often look at a word and, and think of the ways I could misspell it. And so when it's right, it looks wrong to me. I'm not a good speller. <laughs> uh, working on it. Definitely working on it. All right. One thing I got to do is retrain my computer of all, remove all of the misspellings of reliability I've taught it over the years and saying, yeah, that's good. But that's a different story. All right. End of the day, when we're working with a design team and we're in that design for reliability mode, part of our information is to enhance the ability of the designers to set what I call informed tolerances. That they're able to um, understand that standard deviation and that it's a, a reasonable estimate. It comes from real data as much as we possibly can get. And here's how, if we're outside of this range, here's how the, the environmental stresses are going to affect it. Here's the impact it's going to have in manufacturing and yields and so on, which may or may not be a, a critical uh, consideration. But it, it's setting those tolerances such that we get a good process capability and a robust product at the end of the day. And it starts with understanding those standard deviations, understanding those variations. And that just takes time to go get those measurements, go find that information, to track and understand it, um, and, and then work out in our world, then how does understanding those variations and setting tolerances that account for them allow us to create a more reliable product? We know that the environment's gonna have variability in it. And we know that, uh, say, that bolt example, the two pieces of material may shift relative it dimensionally shift relative to each other. The, the differences in coefficient of thermal expansion, for example, is temperature changes. And if we don't design an appropriate bolt in fitting or attachment method, uh, it could fracture the bolt if we're using too small of a piece. Or it could buckle the material, or it could do all kinds of strange things to our design. Understanding the range of temperatures that we're expected to see is one of those variabilities that the design team needs to understand and use in their calculations of what's the right attachment here. And then let's set tolerances such that we can actually make it and it accommodates the variability that we're going to see in the field. I, often people call that robustness. Robustness then also allows us then to create a product that's more reliable, more durable, and so on. But that's just one source of variability. The other is, is how does that material change with time? Does it become more brittle? Does it, does it wear? Does it create corrosion paths? All those elements that can cause problems for us. And why we get paid the big bucks is that we sort out, well, which of those is most important? in this particular design and let's make sure those work yeah and then gla or glancing over at the 
at the chat. And Dennis, yeah, the verification testing. Um, it's often too late to be going after the variability numbers that we need, the standard deviation numbers we need to create a design. Yet it's a good place to make sure that we're on track. It's usually the first place where we're really getting reasonable numbers of samples. And so it's time to prove the concept. All those assumptions made earlier, let's make sure that those standard deviations are what we thought they were. Let's measure them there. Yeah, there's time to go break things and test it and see how it works in different environments. And hopefully we're confirming, verifying everything that we were expecting and not discovering anything new at that point. All right, so in summary, we, and I think I didn't change the labels on this one. So I'm going to go back uh, to the, go on to the next slide and say, in summary, we need to understand variability. And the big part of that understanding the variability is understanding how it impacts the capability index indices that we use in manufacturing. So if we're dealing with a, a key supplier on a critical dimension of a part, it's not enough to say, hey, you need to hold this tight tolerance. It's a matter of understanding first the variability of their stable process. And then can we design a product that is manufacturable and will fit within the capability of that manufacturer, not the other way around. Um, at least in my opinion. And part of this is given that so many different things vary, a big part of our role is looking at it through the lens of a reliability engineer going, what variability is important to the durability, the robustness of the product? So what will lead to increased wear? So high end of the variation of heat, for example, and, and pressure on two mating surfaces that move relative to each other. Uh, that would be an area of concern that in the hot, high pressure situations, we're going to see increased wear. Well, is it too much wear, too fast, that it's going to cause problems? But that goes back to part dimensions and, and sizing and capabilities and eventually back to the tolerancing. And so working closely with your design team by in enhancing their understanding of the standard deviation of the elements that are of most concern to the eventual performance of the product helps us to create a reliable product. And so I, I knew I was going to be a little bit short today, but I only had a, a couple of key concepts I wanted to talk about. And I'm now going to take a closer look at what's going on in the chat window. Lots of stuff going on there. But I certainly have time for some questions, or if you guys have some other thoughts or concepts here, let's uh, bring those out. And you wit witnessed my variability in spelling, or my ability to check spelling, I guess. That's probably a big part of it. Sorry about that. All right, a few people are. You folks are typing to see what comes up here. Let's see if there's anything. Eva, I think you got repeatability, reproducibility, bias. Uh, is precision one? Yeah, no worries, Eva. 
uh, linearity stability, that's six. Um, it might be, I've always thought of it as five, and I, I have trouble myself keeping track of them all sometimes. Uh, the webinar announcement link. Um, Meneer, you can find it over at AscendoReliability.com and look underneath um, events, I believe it is. I don't have a web browser open at the moment. Um, I think it's under events or webinars. I don't remember the menu choice here. Under webinars. And then you can find the Ascendo Reliability webinar series in this particular event. And that has the announcement on it. Oh, this Thursday's event. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me see if I let me track that down. And that's, I, I, thanks for the reminder. This is a, um, uh, a euphemistically, I'm calling it the, the uh, 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 SPC month here at Ascendo Reliability. It's like there is a here or anything like that. But the um, Stephen Wax um, is, he's really got a great program and, and knowledge about statistical process control. And he's offering a webinar for us that, and here it is. Here's the link for uh, Stephen's presentation this Thursday. And he's going to talk about 10 keys to maximize the benefits of your SPC program. So if you've got one going on or you need to set one up and do it well, uh, this uh, hour, I think he's probably planning on an hour, hour and a half, and we'll have plenty of time for questions, um, will be all about SPC. And that reminds me, the other thing is that Stephen has just launched an SPC course. It's a, very comprehensive course on statistical process control and process capability. And it goes in way more detail. And as I was recording it with him uh, and going through the editing, I kept stopping to take notes because I was learning stuff hand over fist in the whole process. So let me give you the, the link to that course if you want to check that out. Um, he recent, we recently added this to the site as a Pretty comprehensive course, and you can get a little bit more information at that link about the course and how to sign up for it and so on. It's a self-based online on-demand course. It's got tons of exercises, and, and we stopped the recording or the, the lecture, unlike a webinar where it's pretty much straight off for an hour. Um, Stephen has this really nice technique of, of stopping and saying, hey, now what do you think about this? You know, what would be a reasonable number here? Or why don't you go calculate this at this point? And then we stop the video, and it opens up an exercise slide or a follow-on slide that then says, all right, well, what's your answer? What's, the, what's your response, whatever? And then it's back into the lecture. So just about every lesson has one or more um, interactions built into it. And it was just this, this natural style of his presenting, and then we were able to build that in, into an online course. So it should be pretty interesting. So, right, a couple of links.